difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky, Tosh Robinson, Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two films about capitalism, race, what it might take to burn down an unjust system, and whether we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. Also, they're comedies. Genevieve, what can you tell us about our latest pairing? Well, can I do it via charades? You can try. Okay, how many syllables, Genevieve? How many syllables? Genevieve, how many syllables? Actually, maybe we should just use words. Okay, then. From the moment it premiered at Sundance this year, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You started earning comparisons to Robert Downey Sr.'s 1969 satire Putney Swope. Any similarities, however, seem to be purely coincidental, since, whenever asked, Riley has pointed out that he's never seen the film. Still, movies don't have to have a direct influence on one another to be worth comparing, particularly when they have this much in common. Released in 1969, Downey's Putney Swope looks at the world of advertising via the story of a black executive's attempt to remake an ad firm in his own image when he becomes its unlikely chairman. It's a satirical comedy with a broad, sometimes overstuffed sensibility, a distinctive visual style, and some strong ideas about capitalism and revolution all of which connected to Sorry to Bother You, in which Lakeith Stanfield stars as a telemarketer who makes another unlikely ascent up the corporate ladder and uncovers a terrible secret in the process. Both are daring films that go out on limbs that others wouldn't attempt to navigate, and both pack more ideas into a few minutes than some movies manage at feature length. On today's show, we'll dive into the chaos of Putney Swope's Capitalist Rebellion. The next Tuesday, look at how Sorry to Bother You brings the rebellion into the 21st century. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors, Harvey's Beer and Lucky Airlines. Congratulations, Putney. It's going to be a pleasure working with you, Swope. You're going to make a great chairman if you stay in line. My father would have wanted it this way. He dug you very much. Your father was a horse's ass. Yeah, but he dug you very much. The changes I'm going to make will be minimal. I'm not going to rock the boat. Rocking the boat's a drag. What you do is sink the boat. And there's no sense sinking nothing unless you can salvage with productive alternatives. And brothers, you can't change nothing with rhetoric and slogans. Because if a man's really got the truth in his pocket, he doesn't talk about it. He hangs it out on a shingle where people can see it. So from now on, the name of this agency is... Truth and soul. TS, baby. That's right. No smoking. In a 2014 interview with Interview Magazine, Robert Downey Sr. recalled that Putney Swope became a hit after Jane Fonda name-dropped it during a Tonight Show appearance. It's strangely fitting that it would take a collision between the mainstream and the underground to make it a success, 
since Putney's Hope is largely about the clash between the mainstream and the underground, a clash not destined to leave those on either side undamaged. Downing has said the film was inspired by his own experiences in advertising, and from its first scene, in which an outside consultant, a man dressed like a hell's angel, breaks down the appeal of beer as being, for men who doubt their masculinity, that's why it's so popular at sporting events and poker games, the film casts a jaundiced eye at the business, suggesting the whole operation is founded on fraud. Then the chairman dies mid-meeting, and the board accidentally elects the firm's only black executive, Putney Swope, who sets about trying to change the system from within, renaming it Truth and Soul Inc., bringing in almost all-black staff, and switching from deception to subversion via wild, experimental, erotic ads so compelling that Americans stay home to watch TV for the commercials alone. That's a fairly coherent explanation for an often incoherent film, one with a lot of other odd elements and ideas floating around as if Downey were just trying to out whatever notions fit broadly within the framework of a scenario. These include Downey overdubbing lead actor Arnold Johnson's voice with his own comical growl, apparently because Johnson kept flubbing his lines. It also includes a subplot about the President of the United States and his First Lady, played by German Little People actors Pepe and Ruth Hermine. Then there are the ads themselves, which range from a Miss Redneck USA competition to a nudity-filled ad for Lucky Airlines. At times, it plays like a countercultural take on laugh-in, flitting from one concept to the next without much connective tissue. The end, however, suggests that chaos is baked into the design. Power goes to Swope's head, and Truth and Soul Inc. starts to drift from its original mission. In the end, a clear, radical idea for using advertising to tear down white hegemony gets co-opted, then falls apart, literally going up in flames. It's a mess, but it's also a mirror. Lay some bread on it. My group doesn't need your money, man. What we can use is your help on another level. I believe that together with your power and my structure, we could create a subliminal tremor throughout the land by using the advertising that comes out of your toilet. A word here, a phrase there, Innuendos. And subtleties. Lay some bread on it. And when the time is right, man, we move in for the kill. No mercy. Stamp on them. What about the bread? Tap City. When my ship comes in, I'll call you. So we took a flyer on this film based on its reputation and how good a match it seemed with Sorry to Bother You. Did we choose wisely? I mean, if nothing else, the prospect of a 1969 film in which the lead character is a black man overdubbed by a white man <laughs> is it's just too on point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's too perfect. I understand why people thought of this film, even if, if Boots Radley had never seen it. There are so many parallels. Now, that said, none of us had seen the movie when we picked it. And I'm not <laughs> sure if we had seen it, we would have necessarily gone for it because it is such a chaotic movie. Sure. Yeah. When I was watching it, I had a hard time finding anything to sort of grab onto and like hold onto as the movie uh, went on. And like, I kind of feel like this discussion <laughs> is kind of similar. Like there's just like so much we could pick up and talk about in this movie, but there's so much of it, you know, and it's, it all feels like kind of, I don't want to say disconnected, but uh, you, can, you can say disconnected. Okay. <laughs> I mean, one of the things yeah. it, it actually really reminded me of was Kentucky Fried Movie. Hmm. Like it, it does feel episodic. It's yeah. weird because if you go back, there aren't that many older reviews, at least the ones you can find online because it was just sort of weirdly distributed. But reviews from then until like reassessments, 
until our friend Noel Murray's recent, you know, 10 years old, but, you know, re- recent-ish review uh, in the AV Club are all kind of the same. same. They're like, this movie's all over the place. It's a mess. It has all these ideas floating around. But I think there's a quality to it that makes it worth looking at and, and talking about. And I, I found – I'm really glad I saw it. It was definitely – on my list of things to see it for a long time. And, and uh, I think it's an interesting film to talk about, too. Scott, what about you? Well, I mean, Criterion picked it up and put it out as part of their Eclipse series, right, as a, mm-hmm. among a bunch of other Downey Sr. films, which I think was the occasion for Noel to review. Though I think he just reviewed that film and not the others in the set, as, as far as I could tell. To me, it's, just, it's utterly shocking to hear that Booth Riley did not see this film. I mean, I, I don't. they have so much in common. Like, I mean, just the idea of overdubbing a black character with a white voice I mean, that's that's a pretty specific (laughs) notion, you know, on top of just the intersection of capitalism and race. And I mean, there's just so much these two films have in common and and also just kind of a revolutionary quality, a kind of a looseness, a comic slant, but also a pretty an attempt at a, a sharp social commentary, though how sharp. Putney Swope actually ends up being is, is, is a matter of discussion. I find the film to be fascinating. I mean, as a cultural object, um, not mm-hmm. not necessarily as a film that I would sit down and appreciate, though it does have its moments. It's, it has some high points. There's a lot of silliness, and a lot of that silliness works for me, and a lot of it doesn't. But you think about it in the context of the time, what was really like it. I mean, it wasn't really an avenue for these types of films to get made in America. I think Downey Sr. was looking to what Godard was doing and trying to find some sort of American equivalent to that. He was trying to get a sense of what was going on in the culture and respond to it in whatever way he could. Uh, Again, not the most coherent way possible, but in a kind of a radical way, in a way that kind of uh, sort of shook things up. I think that carries through all the way to the end of the film, where they're literally lighting a big pile of money on fire. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement in and of itself. So I don't know. It It was a... I'm rambling, which I which is totally in the <laughs> style of the film, but I, I felt like that was it's kind of a wild experience and um, exciting in its way. I mean, it also it feels like one of those Rosetta Stone films that maybe is is deeply under the radar, but that film directors possibly have loved over the years. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that you see, and then you suddenly see so many echoes of it in films that came later. Uh, one of the things that most comes to mind is the opening sequence of The Hudsucker Proxy, mm-hmm. which is a bunch of advertisers uh, sitting around yes-manning a, uh, a corporate executive who then dies in spectacular fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a Kentucky Fried Movie, there's a lot of like later black exploitation that feels to some degree like this, like sort of a conversation between different aspects and approaches in the black community and just kind of the the dialogue that was going on uh, at the time. And then you you get into stuff like The Dark Knight and the, the burn, symbolic burning of a huge pile of money as a subversive act against capitalism itself. This just feels like a film that inspired a lot of things in a way that maybe we didn't know about up until now. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of the next topic I had here was was that it's been cited as an influence by Jarmusch and Paul Thomas Anderson and Louis C.K. Um, and, and, um, especially, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you there. <laughs> especially Louis C.K., but we'll just leave that one alone for now. But yeah, I mean, Anderson cast Downey in, in a couple, uh, couple of films as well. Another scene that really opened my eyes was when the uh, Chinese fireworks fu- scene, yep, but yep. he dies basically <laughs> is, is lifted from this. Even the line "He's he's Chinese" is is, yeah. is, uh, yeah. is from this too. So yeah, it is sort of it is a secret source. Uh, uh, this film of a lot of other stuff, I believe. I mean, obviously that's a direct homage. 
I see it with CK stuff, the sort of like yeah. casual surrealism. It, like uh, like you mumbled it because we don't really want to talk about Louis CK that much these days. <laughs> but like in terms, if we're talking influences, that feels to me stylistically like the most direct descendant of what's happening in, in Putney Swope, so what Louis CK did on Louis in particular. Yeah, some of the wild ideas you just introduced and like, oh, this is the whacked out premise that we're just going to deal with for the next 30 minutes yeah. as if it were Some normal strange life. casting mm-hmm. like like the child agent or accountant i forget who the character but yeah. louis like is played by a child like that here with the president of the united states and his wife played by german little people you know <laughs> like just sort of one of whom actually ended up the male one was in uh even dwarf started small uh <laughs> so it's, it's definitely a rich legacy of of filmmaking um and like paul thomas anderson clearly loves this movie like there's a criterion interview of him talking to downey about it it mostly just boils down to paul thomas anderson being like where did you find this actor and then Downey saying where where he found that actor Um, it's not the most revealing interview but like you can tell that anderson really admires this film and, and downey in general probably but like stylistically i don't see a whole lot in anderson's work that it can, is like directly traceable to putney swope the way we see in louis ck's work but i think in terms of just like the admiration and maybe this time period i think anderson is really fascinated with in, in general and maybe counterculture movies of this era kind of going back to the last discussion item i watched another brief interview with downey because i just like, i needed some help getting my head around this <laughs> i just like watched all the interviews i could find he pointed out that this movie and easy rider were in theaters the same week and it was like kind of the two sides of the counterculture film happening at, at that exact moment in time you know like easy rider was the more mainstream version but they were coming out of sort of the same sensibility at the same point in time yeah i can definitely see that and there's sort of in with both of them was like well, let's just throw out the rule book for a little mm-hmm. bit and see what we can do think about the fact that this movie was a hit right i mean that, i think that's significant in, in terms of what the culture needed writer style yeah but no but but i mean like but i mean this is not a hugely accessible film and it certainly isn't something the type of film that people were used to seeing in any way shape or form i mean so for it to come out and have the kind of impact that it had on the culture is it you know that's that's something it also uh, had appropriately a very memorable advertising campaign like that movie poster mm -hmm. i guess was plastered all over new york city you know Mm -hmm. and it's uh can you describe for the people uh, what the poster is uh it's a big middle finger (laughs) with the with the words putney swope on it you know Uh, but what what is the middle finger though the middle finger is actually was like a woman in the middle oh yeah yeah it says up madison avenue that's right (laughs) (laughs) very suggestive the truth and soul movie yeah so uh yeah definitely in terms of being a hit benefited at least somewhat from its advertising campaign ironically (laughs) yes is this satire effective i guess in some ways you kind of have to be in 1969 (laughs) a little bit to determine that but i did keep thinking of mad men because we kind of saw a fictionalized version of the evolution of advertising through the 60s and here we are at the tail end of that when you know, when we know some traditional techniques have been thrown away or are breaking down. Uh, so it felt like there's kind of an opening for a shakeup in advertising. I found some of the ads really funny and some of the ads just went on forever. <laughs> but I could recognize that they were kind of blowing something up that was familiar. Like I really I laughed out loud at the cereal commercial. Yeah. <laughs> the one that said no shit. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which would uh, you know Which that, is the one with the teenagers uh um Oh the face cream. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, that's oh, where they're one, singing that's and it's one, just a very I, I laughed uh, a lot at that one as well. You know, it's a very seventies musical mode and they're singing about pimples and dry humping. Yeah. Face off skin cream. Because a pimple off. is simple. 
yeah. but the whole the whole story the whole story at the beginning they're telling you about the uh, things get a little uh, ripe but I mean I you, you talk about the film being a hit I, I do have to wonder how much of it was a hit because there's like a three minute sequence of <laughs> topless women jumping up and down on a trampoline which is the kind of thing that in, would in draw people motion. into yeah, yes because it's art in slow motion and sometimes in, in super extreme close up like if you're an artist and you want to figure out what the female breast does at various points of, of a trampoline arc <laughs> this is the study material for you yeah I was, I was watching this at a coffee shop and it's like oh I better hunt but that said, I mean, I, it does feel like part of its success and part of its satire here is it's specifically talking about like, here is this group of old white men who are the same voices uh, regurgitating and recycling and recirculating the same ideas over and over. And then you get in a bunch of new voices that in this case, Madison Avenue hasn't heard before. Actually, that aspect of it feels very modern, you know, because we're watching exactly that happen in the cinema industry with things like Black Panther. You know, you're, you're getting in more and more directors who have been marginalized in the past and whose point of view is different. And they're producing things that we haven't entirely seen before. I think that to the degree that Putney Swope works as a satire, it's satiring like these tired old voices and making fun of the idea that we keep listening to the same voices and then showing what happens when you bring in new ones. Like that feels like a resonant and modern idea still today. I'm not sure if you want to talk about this in terms of the satire working, which is, again, I think it's a kind of a mixed bag, but to me, the primary theme of the film is capitalism as a corrupting mm -hmm. force as someone who putting smoke coming in and really shaking things up and banning weapons uh, you know uh, commercials about weapons and, and war toys and and all these other things um smoking smoking is, and alcohol right so so he's going to take all those things away he's going to call the company truth and soul inc but by the arc of the film is him being corrupted by mm -hmm. that power and letting all of those horses back in and i think it's the case of someone being victimized or compromised by the system in which he participates, which is a... So I feel like that's kind of like, you know, the main thrust of the film to my mind. I, I don't see that at all. I mean, in the end, he says, we're going to cover all of these things, come up with ads, and he gets pushback and he, he kind of says, you know, it was all a test. And then he takes his money and he leaves. And to me, that is him saying, like, I, I'm done. Like, there's, there's nowhere to go here except selling out. So he takes his big bag of money and he walks off. Now, he gives orders for, like, everybody to get their share of the money and then they all come around and say you know actually we're willing to sell out after all and he doesn't push back against that which feels like a place where you know the film does sort of lose its way a lot him not really responding to that feels like one of those aspects but the way he you know he takes his big bag of money and he walks away a winner feels to me like it's just part and parcel of the whole film kind of being about his being fed up with the establishment. And now he feels he's becoming the establishment, so so he abandons it. Yeah, he's a tough read as a character. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 was, I was about to say, like, for a film that's named Putney Swope, I think Putney Swope, the character, is kind of like the biggest liability of this film in terms of its satire, just because it's, like you said, it's like he's a hard character to get a handle on, like what he wants. We're introduced to him, like, 
without any real background, you, you know, and just in terms of this movie kind of needs an organizing principle and it seems like it should be Putney Swope, but it's not executed, I, I don't think, very well in terms of giving an arc to this movie and to that character. Because I, I kind of had Scott's read on it in terms of him being corrupted, you know, but then hearing you lay it out, it's like, oh, okay. I guess that did happen, Mm -hmm. but I didn't like really feel that progression in the character. And I think that's because the character is kind of a blank, you know, and that may be a symptom of the voiceover and or the dubbing and, you know, the kind of performance disconnect, or maybe it's just like not great writing. I don't know. I I think it's, it's, I think it's a bunch of things. One is definitely the dubbing. Like the fact that we're, we're never really hearing much tonal variation. Like we're not hearing a lot of acting in Robert Downey Sr.'s voice as he's saying these things. It just feels like he's focusing on trying to make his voice as deep as possible because he thinks that's a black voice, but uh, (laughs) you know, it doesn't, it really doesn't come across. I think clumsy writing in a lot of cases is also a problem, but I honestly, think that a good deal of it comes from an attempt to actually make Putney Swope into a kind of black everyman. Mm -hmm. I think we don't know anything about his background or his history. Like That is a very notable and well-written about phenomenon with women characters and and people of color characters, is the idea that they don't have a background because they don't matter. They're only there to forward like a white character's agenda. In this case, I think it's 100% deliberate because he's meant to be a stand-in. In a way, he's kind of the fool wandering through this narrative with all of these different forces acting on him symbolically, like dumping in, you know, here's Black Panther politics, and here's like appeasingist politics, and here's uh, integration politics, and, you know, here's just chaotic politics, here's Black Muslim politics, and all of it kind of drips off of him, because he's not meant to be veering back and forth between these extremes. Like, he's just sort of the receptacle that everybody's trying to dump their crap into. And at the end of the day, he's like, I got mine, I'm leaving. And I, I think that's meant to be symbolic. Well, now they put it that way, this is an even better connection with Sorry to Bother You. But, oh, but that's, sure. that's getting ahead of ourselves, maybe. But <laughs> Yeah, no, there's definitely some interesting contrast. I mean, I, I felt like I had a much stronger understanding and appreciation for this character right at the beginning. I think the film puts its best foot forward in the beginning. Um, I, I think that for him to kind of get appointed by everyone voting for him because they didn't think anybody would, that which is a very kind of a clever device in and of itself, and then his decision to seize that power to the extent that he does fire the entire board even the guy who's trying to say that my father admired you and wanted (laughs) would have wanted this he dismisses that guy there was something kind of exciting about that sort of power move and also something exciting about the idea of him reforming this agency under a different set of ideals And then, of course, it's also a good idea for the film to show those ideals being compromised. But I just think somewhere along the way, it just loses the plot. And it's very hard to see this transformation that you describe because I think things get murky right at the point where they should be clear. Yeah, I think it kind of literally loses the plot, too. Like, all the business with the president um, is kind of there for the sake of a gag, it seems like. It just goes on. And some of the subplots with the other ones, uh, other people at the company, the running gag about the guy who keeps getting arrested just doesn't work at all, you know? And yeah. there's no, no idea. running gag does, no does work, though. No idea what his Mark, relationship Mark Focus? is anything. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, my God. That's, <laughs> I that, love that, Mark that, Focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That is so funny. Every single time I thought that was hilarious. 
here's what I did for life. Mark Focus is a Muppet movie level gag. Like yeah. Mark yeah. Focus not only feels like a Muppet movie gag, which which you know is Borscht Belt humor. It's like it's vaudeville level uh, mm-hmm. humor. But it also that is another thing that really made me think of Kentucky Fried Movie and something out of one of the airplane movies and their followers. And I I'm with you. I laughed every time. And Pre-beats the fact all that, that stuff. The fact that he's popping up in people's bedrooms yeah. just like and when he was talking to the president like in showing him the photos they were like in little tiny frames <laughs> and, and they were and we don't see them but they're apparently all funeral like shots or, or shots of dead presidents and then he gets invited to, to join them in the sack yeah. which he uh, eagerly embraces which again that's that's just really surreal mark focuses and turn on a gig you know i mean <laughs> Yeah, I love how he gets to that first scene of him getting negotiated down from like a twelve thousand yeah. dollar fee or something 9, down to nothing. How much was 9, it? Nine thousand. Yeah, down down to like da- down to nothing. Well, I can get anyone. To I do can it get for anyone nothing. for nothing. Yeah, that's that's also a, a like a much tighter piece of banter than mm-hmm. most of the movie. I'm glad, I'm glad everybody was on board with that because yeah. <laughs> that, that was the one bit that was gold for me in the film. You know, start to finish. Not not, um, not the Arab. The Arab no, that wasn't uh, good. And the president, all the, all the stuff with the with the little persons as uh, as uh, president and first lady. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that's just very, very baggy. <laughs> one of one of Keith's kind of uh, questions that he said he was going to ask was just what comedy bits in the movie worked for you. I think above everything, the bodyguards fumbling over the gun, mm-hmm. the thing where he he pulls out his gun and he threatens somebody, and then he tries to put it back in his pocket and drops it, and then later <laughs> the the shooting happens and he's like slowly picking through his pockets and checking his fly just like somewhere in here there's a gun and the the payoff later where the guy where the, his replacement has a gun on a string like mittens on a string and <laughs> yeah exactly that was exactly the comparison that i wrote down was the the, tied, he, the string tying the gun to his holster and then later he pulls the gun and it's just got this like ridiculously emasculating piece of white twine around it um all of that humor and also Oh, and by the way, speaking of uh, sort of future references, the the whole business with the kind of sad sack pudgy employee that keeps getting disrespected and told to use the freight elevator reminded me so much of Milton in Office Space. Mm. And then it goes to a very similar place at the end. But mm. uh, yeah, the, the physical comedy sort of fumbling around the gun, uh, I just, I really enjoyed that. And then after... The office shooting, which should be very traumatic and very serious, in the background, he does like a full-on cartoon, dun, 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 kind of tiptoe away (laughs) before somebody (laughs) grabs him. And it's just, it's a ridiculous piece of physical comedy that I was was just really fond of. I was thinking about how influential the film was to get back to even an earlier question um we're really and, treating the questions here like putney swope treats yeah. it's very it's a puzzle it's a puzzle all, that we keep coming sort of back to it'll, it'll, we're just gonna tag in on each of them it'll come together in editing guys don't worry about <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah it'll have a murky murky second and third act i look um, forward to where we get keith on the trampoline that's <laughs> so in terms of influence i mean it's almost the perfect thing to be influential now that i think about it and that you can be influenced by the spirit of it and what it represented at the time and the themes that it was trying to advance and certain moments like the firecrackers. But then you can also think of ways to improve on those things. You know what I mean? It, it, like like the, the firecracker thing, it's like, okay, that's a spark of inspiration for Paul Thomas Anderson. So he's going to take that element. He's going to put it in the backdrop of this scene that is already filled with incredible tension. And each one of those firecrackers is going to make us 
unnerved in a way that we never are during that scene in Putney Swope. And, and I think you can kind of, you know, or Louis C.K. maybe in the best moments of Louis are, can take an absurdist moment and, and really make it pop in a way that it didn't in Putney Swope. So this is such kind of a building block it's kind raw, of a movie. It's raw material. It's raw, exactly. It's raw material. And, 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 it's, and I think, you know, if you consider it in the context of the time, um, it's exciting and important, even though it's unrefined. I think there was it was just kind of a pass the baton moment. It was like where you can recognize this as being an important statement, and then and then run with it and build on it. You know. Yeah, I, th- I think like to go to, back to a, a former subject of this podcast. I don't think Mash happens in quite the way it happens without this movie either. Well, did you notice Alan Arbus in there? Oh right, yeah. That's yeah. I, I mean, he was the only person who really stood out to me as somebody I'd seen before, and and it was definitely I kept I kept having an is that that's not Alan Arkin like that sort of right. level of like background. It's not Bob Balaban. Yeah, and, and uh, the other, another guy, the guy who plays the son of the founder of the company, that's played by Alan Garfield, who's in Nashville. And the guy who played the Arab is uh, Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch, Antonio <laughs> Vargas. Um, but uh, Mel Brooks is in there somewhere. It's not the same Mel Brooks. It's somebody oh, else named okay. Mel Brooks. I, I, I was looking for him too because I yeah. saw him in the cast list. A couple of reviews referenced him being in it, but I, I, I yeah, know. he's in the credits. But uh, from from what I've read, it was a different Mel Brooks. Different Mel Brooks, huh? No, probably just as funny though, right? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, he, he, you can tell that he went on to as Sterling a career. Sure. We have the two Mel Brookses. We should do. We got to do a Brooks movie at some a, point. We we need to do the dueling Mel Brooks movies with the two different <laughs> Mel Brooks, like their yeah. their biggest films. I guess before we wrap, I, for me, the most confusing thing in this movie, like I have, I think I may have come across as having drawn this movie as a lot more coherent than it is. Mm-hmm. And I do not in any way disagree with you guys about how wandering it is and how baggy it is and how it loses the plot in the middle. For me, where it loses the plot is just I don't actually have a sense of what, if anything, Putney believes in. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the film treats his vision as though it's coherent and consistent and produces these ads that everybody wants to see. But looking at both the ads and his behind the scenes, I don't actually have any idea like what he believes in or what's important. I don't know if the film does either because there's a scene where everyone's pitching him ideas and he's rejecting a lot of them. I don't really understand what his standards are. And I don't know if that's supposed to be a, a moment where we sense he's kind of losing his direction or it's just sort of him like actually trying to act on the ideals he has. It's baffling to me. Although it's going to take my favorite moment is the guy who's like, it's good to know if I ever do have any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be welcome to hearing them or whatever. Well, couldn't you say, though, that he is – well, we know what he's rejecting. We know what clients he's unwilling to sure. take. But wouldn't you say that he – broadly that he's embracing the idea of artistic freedom, of giving creators a certain amount of latitude – creating these commercials that are provocative and I mean, not the way unusual. he's shooting down those ideas. Right. You know, and, I, I, I you think, know, I sometimes stealing about- people's ideas and doing them himself and, like, uh, arbitrarily firing people. The whole scene oh, with wow. the where the where Huggy Bear is uh, making out with the woman in the office and he tells him he's fired and he's like, oh, no, no, you can't fire me. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll fire her. And then he ends up taking up with her instead. Like, that whole yeah. thing is just very muddled for me in terms of, like, what he believes in or what's like is there satirical intent there or is it just maybe, a bunch of stuff that maybe happens? i'm just looking at the product the, the commercials that come out of this thing which yeah, are I'm, very unusual i mean I, th- I think if putney swope believes in anything or wants anything it's just it's revolution it's changing the status quo and the fact that that he doesn't seem to have a very like strong basis for how or even why uh he's doing that 
may be intentional and, and may be a, a greater statement, but I don't think it's like engaged within the movie in any way. Like that's just me bringing a, a reading to it that may be informed by somewhat by our next <laughs> movie that we'll be discussing. Yeah. So. It's, a, it's a baffling movie and it's, it's kind of it's frustrating, but also I think really rewarding. I'm glad, glad we did it. We're glad we took a flyer and, 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 uh, and did this one. I think we're going to just not see any of our movies before we pick them. <laughs> you keep saying take a flyer. I'm not, I'm not sure people are going to understand what that means. I mean, oh, we did kind of hit it at the high, at the top. Oh, I just, you know, pick take, a, take a chance. Of, seen before. Yeah, take a, take a blind, blind chance. Yeah, we took a risk based I, on the film's reputation. I just like the phrase "take a flyer." Take a flyer. <laughs> I'm going to use it in my ad campaigns. Oh my take gosh, a flyer. that's really lucky airlines. Lucky airlines. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's really going to sell. You know, consolidated, uh, amalgamated. Uh, well, what is it? Pollution, defects, velvet safety belts, strobe headlights, and fiberglass windshields. Take a flyer. Take a flyer. <laughs> take a flyer. Uh, well, that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, we'll be talking about it some more in, in the uh, next episode where we talk about Sorry to Bother You. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it in weeks to come via feedback. And speaking of feedback, we'll be right back in a moment with your feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Because of our change in schedule, we haven't gotten quite as much feedback as usual from our Don't Look Now and Hereditary episodes, but we're still getting some feedback from Incredibles 2 and Goldfinger. Tasha, would you like to share one? Sure. Aaron has written about the Bond films on his site, Three Brothers Blog. We'll link to that on Facebook. He writes, I understand that most of Goldfinger's pleasures are surface level, but I bristle at the idea that the film has no ideas behind its exciting action and witty humor. In particular, I think that the film makes some interesting comments on personal vices and morality, especially in how it compares and contrasts James Bond and Arik Goldfinger. Like many Bond villains, Goldfinger acts as a doppelganger of Bonds, with both men the victim of their individual vices. In my 2015 review, I wrote, both are intelligent British men, although Gert Frobe's Teutonic visage and dubber Michael Collins' ambiguous accent make this fact hard to remember, with a taste for the best things in life. They look very different from each other, but Goldfinger resembles Bond if he were to let his excesses soften his body. Both are subject to multiple vices, of which Goldfinger's greed trumps all. It's important to remember that Goldfinger is the only Connery Bond film where Spectre isn't the antagonist. Although Goldfinger would certainly have made a trusty member of Spectre, his real master is his greed, his vices. Goldfinger's lust for gold supplies his power and his undoing. Bond's own vices are likewise his strength and his shortcoming. Bond's only saving grace is that when he's left no other recourse, he uses his practiced skills of seduction in service for queen and country. Bond may be a cad, but he has a system of values that puts England first and foremost. Goldfinger, as Bond's foil, is beholden to no higher call. His vices exist for their own sake and are never satisfied. While Bond wants women and booze and to feel the thrill of adventure, Goldfinger wants gold and the power it entails. Bond's indulgences get him in trouble, but his refinement and sense of duty and class ultimately keep him in check. Goldfinger has no sense of duty, and he's destroyed by it, morally and physically. Goldfinger implies that Bond could easily become a Goldfinger if he didn't serve his country. The line between him and his nemesis is that thin, and his sole sense of morality saves him. This duality makes Goldfinger both a celebration of Bond's talents and the excesses his films delight in, and a criticism of what that sort of excess can achieve when unchecked by any sort of moral boundaries or system of values, unquote. Goldfinger may act primarily as an exciting action film, but it's not devoid of thematic substance underneath its ample surface pleasures. Like so many of the Bond films prior to the Daniel Craig films, it's most interested in spectacle, but it has more thematic complexity than general consensus gives it credit for having. General consensus, I mean, that's a very high ranking. <laughs> <laughs> you have to salute for that. 
So kind of the, uh, we're not so different, you and I, Dr. Jones kind of take on Goldfinger. Uh, oh, sure. I mean, at this point, I've really come to see like all good villains as in some way a dark mirror uh, of their heroes. Like mm-hmm. it's Not Venom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay okay you're right and, and definitely not joker and uh you know certainly not syndrome i mean it's a very very common thing and to some degree if there isn't any reflection if there isn't any way in which a film engages that particular dynamic you have to question what else it says like what else it's specifically saying about heroism and villainy or about what it means to make a moral choice or an immoral choice I mean, I agree that here that is an idea, and I think it's it comes across very strongly, particularly in the scene where they're both golfing, and it's just kind of like, here's the cheaty, obnoxious, underhanded, punishable way to golf, and like here's the James Bond way to golf. Like Those are your two choices. So, I mean, I, I certainly agree that the film thinks a lot about that. I'm just not sure how much it really comes across in a, a thematically important way. Keith, you, I'm kind of curious about your perspective on this, specifically this idea of, of the villain being someone who exists outside of Spectre. Is that a meaningful distinction to you? You know, that's, I think that kind of the absence of Spectre, like sort of this big faceless organization, although obviously with, with a, an arch villain at the center of it, opens up for a more personal connection. I think it is, maybe is what's something that sets Goldfinger apart and it's something I hadn't really considered before. I think it's a really good reading of, of that film. The Spectre thing, combined with what Tasha was just saying about all good villains being kind of a, a dark mirror of the hero, like it kind of applies, I think, as well to Spectre as a villain if you're thinking of Spectre as a dark mirror of MI6. Sure, you know, if, yeah. like, if you're looking at the organization as the, the mirror and then you have a figure at the center of your arch-villain and then Bond, you know, so it applies in that way as well. I say good read. Thanks for, thanks for writing in. Yeah. Uh, we also got a general query. <gasps> general, query? general query? We're all so um, From a listener that begins with some praise for the late lamented film spotting SVU, hosted by our friends Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. R.I.P. <laughs> They're still alive. <laughs> the film spotting SVU, not that. Okay, good. <laughs> Matt and Allison are fine. Uh, Christopher had a question inspired by their final episode. We're trimming the question a bit, but we'll post a long version on Facebook. Scott, can you share it? Matt and Allison asked listeners for questions for the last episode of SVU. One of the questions that was asked was, quote, what opinion do you hold that would generally be considered unpopular in the larger film criticism community? Allison's response to this was, quote, auteur theory is often a trap, unquote. I tend to agree with Allison on this. It is not that auteur theory is wrong or bad, but I do think it has become overblown in the film criticism community. Note, this is my view at this point in moving forward, not Allison's. Auteur theory tends to skew criticism in a couple of ways. One, it assumes that auteurs are better directors than non-auteur directors. This is simply not the case. Robert Wise and Michael Curtiz jump immediately into mind as really great directors that are generally not considered auteurs. This does not mean that they are not interested in their work or that they are not interested in making quality work, but it seems that auteur theory suggests that there are auteurs and then there are hacks. Two, it assumes that any film that an auteur makes is interesting and artful because it is made by an auteur. I call this Stanley Kubrick syndrome, the idea that a film is a masterwork simply because it has Kubrick's name on it, as if auteurs cannot make bad films. Have you seen Hitchcock's family plot, or Truffaut's Such a Gorgeous Girl Like Me, or Half a Godard's output, he says uh, rhetorically? (laughs) Um, Three, auteur theory uh, can have a bad effect on current filmmakers. I think the best example of this right now is Wes Anderson. 
He seems to have become so consumed by his own sense of style and storytelling that his movies are becoming more and more airless and almost claustrophobic. I think you discussed this a bit on the Isle of Dogs episode. We did. We did. And maybe it is just that Wes Anderson really can only make films in the way that he does. But I think it is likely that the idea of being an auteur looms large with him and can potentially constrict his thinking or cause him not to be more adventurous in his choices. Even if this is not true for Anderson, I do think it is a danger of the prominence of auteur theory. So that being said, what are other methods that you find productive for grouping <laughs> films as a means of discussion? Well, I think we should like probably that. unpack the auteur theory thing yeah, first. I think it's, I think it's uh, one problem I have with it is that it's is that it's not used properly or considered the right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, it's it's taken on a meaning that it really was never meant. Well, to let's take let's on. define our terms. As what 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 do you think the proper definition is, and and go from there? The auteur theory was a way for we started with the French, and it was a way for them to identify certain aspects of features as being connected with filmmakers. So to be able to look at a studio film, you know, by Hitchcock or Anthony Mann or Nicholas Ray and be able to see a certain common set of aesthetic values that are being expressed by this film. And, and the idea that the, the director is the author of exactly. the film. Exactly. I mean, and that, is, that to me, when you, that, I mean, that fundamental truth, you take that away and, and film is chaos to me. I don't, know, I don't see how film can be even thought about without thinking about it in terms of a director because I don't think anything really connects up any other way. That's me, but I'm kind of a, a dogmatic about that. But in, in any case, the idea of value being attached to a filmmaker just because they're on tour, I mean, I think that's probably true, though Stanley Kubrick's not really a great example because I think he, he mostly kind of, made really kind of great just films. just made masterpieces. But uh, I, mean, right. I mean, you know... You have, follow that through to its logical conclusion, you get people going nuts over a late period, like Edwards movies or something. Sure, you know? no, I mean you can go, you can, you can certainly take that too far, or you can identify certain features of a filmmaker and then be blind to the shortcomings as well. But I just, I don't, I don't know. But I, I, I think, I think I it's th- a very useful. I think it is a very useful, important theory that is hugely influential in ways that people who even object to it don't acknowledge enough yeah That's i mean I, I think it's it's useful when until it's not you know i, I think there's certain limitations but i also you know i have my blu-rays arranged by director you know <laughs> I, I i know wouldn't say i'm i'm all in with every possible permutation of the auteur theory but i'm kind of where scott is where it is so useful to talk about how i film and it also kind of explains you know why i would would rather watch a late period blake edwards movie than than another comedy that came out like 1988 just because i i have that's a you know someone i can follow through certain themes and interests uh but i don't like the way it excludes people like he points out like curtis or you know billy wilder usually gets left out in the cold well, I don't, john I don't, houston is the classic john example. houston of yeah. course and, and john houston is one of the great directors he's made one great film up you know not all great but you no. know um yeah. there's more great films than most directors and you know i'm trying to think where does someone like soderbergh fit into this you know, and Soderbergh is, is I think um, he's pretty rec- kind of pretty recognizable style. Sort of, but I mean, I think really? he also remakes I, I mean, himself. I mean, I think he, I think one of the yeah. Well, I mean, like I'm talking the, the time of the good Germany talked about how what he would like to be was a like a Michael Curtiz type, like a studio director just taking assignments. But he couldn't and, though because he's like, Steven Soderbergh and his yeah, fingerprints were all over that. Movie. Yeah, I know. I but know. He does. But, he does make a point of reinventing himself. He does. He's been very clear about this. He staves off boredom by experimenting. Now, if you take the experimentation itself as a sign of auteurism. 
regardless of what the form of the film it eventually produces is, I can get behind that. But if you're saying that he has like a set of, of signature directorial moves and narrative beats with Soderbergh, it's, I think it's very hard to say. Now, on the other hand, I believe that he's an author of his films more than a lot of directors are, especially a lot of people who are cranking out, you know, studio uh, stuff. So, you know, is Adam Shankman an auteur? Because you can, <laughs> you can see what his, you can look at his films and say, oh, that's Adam Shankman film. I, I, to me, there's there's so much complication here, and I, I think Scott's right, and it, it comes down to people misusing the term. Mm. I think any reading of auteur theory where you think that uh, somebody, once you've labeled them as an auteur, can do no wrong is basically just saying this is a good director, and therefore there must be a, a high quality to all of their films. Yeah. Even if I personally can't see them, it's there because they're above me in some way, which puts them like above critical reflection, which I just don't think no, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. For me, as far as the most productive ways to divide films, I still think studio and indie productions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that is conceived from the beginning as a studio product is distinctly different from something that is made independently. I think you're more likely to see somebody who is authoring their own film in an indie setting. Now, the barriers are kind of, you know, breaking down and getting fuzzy as you get more and more like tiny little independent production companies that are trying to serve the function of actual studios and producing their own effects and then either distributing them them themselves or passing them on to big studios solely for distribution. But I still think it's a useful model because talking about like where that money comes from really does help determine where the narrative pressures are in terms of how much uh, freedom that you have, how much freedom of expression, how much uh, like limitation in distribution, something like Sorry to Bother You, you you're just really not going to get out of a company like Disney. Right. And I think yeah. drawing that distinction is still helpful. Yeah, it's uh, right. And it's something, the example, I guess, of the MCU is something that's really tightly controlled and not necessarily something you assign to particularly filmmakers. I, I feel I like mean, there, there's more personality in the MCU that sometimes gets credit for, but I think that's sort of like a little part that's portioned off for that, and then yeah. there's a, it's not, another sorry portion to bother you that. It's like here. this is this is you know this is a Boots Riley film. Sure. This is his complete vision. So yeah, I mean, I, I my method is to think about films in terms of the director I, most of the time. <laughs> um, so uh, I get hung up on on eras a lot. I get hung up like on on you know what was possible and from 1982 to 1984 that wasn't possible in, in 1988 to 1989, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, and I find I'm very sensitive about that. Before a certain point, like I think I have a better sense of like, you know, a 1992 film, a 1996 film is in like 2006 and 2012. I'm, maybe it's just because it's too recent to, to to analyze from that from any distance. But how about you, Genevieve? I mean, mine's kind of similar, but it's not really like a, a way to like group films universally. Like it's not how you would organize your Blu-rays, say, but just <laughs> in terms of as the question says, like grouping films as a means of discussion. I think like technological advances can be an interesting way to like talk about and like this breaks down more by genre like I think in comedy for instance the move from film to digital has a very pronounced effect on film comedy Um, and animation obviously you can there's all sorts of distinctions you can make in terms of 
obviously hand-drawn to computer animation, but also just like distinctions within those those forms. Action, of course, you know, CGI and, and practical effects. And so I don't really have like a great term for this, but I, I guess just like the technology of film, I think can be a productive way to kind of group and talk about films. I, I like the decades one. I mean, I think at this point, everybody knows what you're talking about when you say a 70s movie, even though the 70s as a film era did not start like on January 1st, 1970, uh, you know, and end at the, the end of the decade. And not every film made during that era, like fits into a, a neat pile. But when you're talking about commonalities, like a 70s movie, like that brings up a ton of specific images. And I think that's useful. I'm going to throw out one more, which is I sometimes think of films in terms of escapist versus empathetic, mm. essentially a film that is meant to take you out of your emotions and out of your space and like out of whatever you're feeling and into another space where you can experience something else, something maybe a lot safer for a while versus films that are made to take you into maybe somebody else's emotion and experience something painful or upsetting um, that is real in a very different way. Like both of neither of these films, I think are inherently better than the other, but I think as classes, they have very, very different aims. I really like that one. That's an interesting one. Yeah. And, and, and now I'm kind of like fixated on doing a pairing that, like for the, for this <laughs> show of a, of an escapist versus empathetic films that tackle the same subject matter in some oh, way. That'd that would be really interesting. We'll keep that in, in the back of our minds. Yeah, but... Keep us away from these auteur pairings we keep talking about. Yeah, <laughs> we do like the auteur pairings. Yeah. <laughs> that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Sorry to Bother You, consider its resemblance and its departures from Putney Swope. Look for that next Tuesday. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, you can't eat an air conditioner. A pimple is simple If you treat your pimples right